good, good to see everyone again. I understand there's still some folks downstairs, but we'll kind of let them uh, let them wander up here. Good to see everybody here again. I'm excited for uh, uh, for tonight. Am I uh, am I on here? That that. Okay, now I'm good. Hi, good evening. Good to see everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for coming back. After listening to me last week, we were hoping some people would come back anyway. But it's uh, it's good to uh, good to uh, good to have you here. Very excited for those that are here for for those that are here for the first time. We uh, yeah, uh, welcome. Good to have you here. Uh, what we are doing for six weeks is very intentionally looking at the Reformation uh, from a variety of perspectives. Uh, and I'm absolutely intrigued by that, looking forward to that. Uh, as we said last week, we very intentionally are not arguing theology. Uh, but we do want to look at things from different perspectives, see some different ways of looking at things, come to understand some different ways of looking at things, hopefully in the process talk to each other, uh, and learn how to work together a little better. Uh, so all sorts of uh, just, uh, just wonderful possibilities. Uh, let's see, other things to be announced. Uh, we have just a few expenses uh, with all this, and if you want to leave a donation, there's a wooden box on the door. Uh, please feel most welcome to do that. And I think I'm going to start with a word of prayer and then introduce our speakers. Would you, uh, would you pray with me? Holy Lord, we give you thanks again for this chance to come together in your name. We thank you for the chance to talk about what it means to be your people, to seek you in deeper ways. Be with us and bless this time. Watch over us, Lord Jesus, for in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I'm very happy tonight to introduce uh, Bishop Joseph Strickland and Father Joshua Nye, who will be speaking on a Catholic perspective on the, Re on the uh, Reformation. I just feel blessed. I mean, what an absolute, absolute gift uh, to have the two of you here sharing with us uh, and, 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 uh, and teaching us. And so we are so happy to have you here. And looking forward to all of this. I'm going to turn things over to you. Thank you. They knew I'd uh, wave my hands around too much with that, so they stuck it in my ear. Uh, hopefully you can continue to hear that way. Thank you uh, for, for gathering for this. Um, what comes to mind to begin with for me is, is John 3.16 something we're all familiar with, God so loved the world. And I think that that is a, a great place to, to begin any kind of reflection or discussion of, of something like the, the Reformation. It is always God's intention that we who are created in his image share his life and share his goodness. God so loved the world, he gave us his only begotten son. And I think... I wanted to start there because probably for all of us here, that is a unifying factor. From the Catholic perspective, the, the whole reality of the Reformation is a challenge to the unity in the body of Christ that Christ himself prays for that oneness of the community of the Son of God that God gave to the world is, I believe, the, a common factor that we really should begin with, the idea of unity. That's what ecumenism is about, and the, the Catholic Church is very committed to ecumenism. 
The Second Vatican Council especially really spoke of that. That occurred in the mid-1960s. 500 years ago, challenges to unity came from some questions that really needed to be asked. But from the Catholic's perspective, they began to pull the, the body apart in ways that were not what we believe was ever God's intention. That whole idea of unity in Jesus Christ is a basic principle that hopefully we're all working toward and recognizing. Part of the, the lack of unity that occurred in the, um, in the reality of the Reformation really had to do with authority and whose authority are we looking toward. I think we would all ultimately want to follow God's authority. And the questions of authority are really at the, the very root of, of what happened 500 years ago, questioning what it means to, to be children of God and to listen to the authority that we believe in the Catholic Church is expressed through the whole reality of the church, the hierarchy, what we call apostolic succession. Um, that reality is something that many people um, don't embrace, and certainly with the Reformation, it, it all began to take different directions. But from our perspective, that idea of unity in the authority that is ultimately the authority of Jesus Christ is what was challenged in the, the Reformation uh, 500 years ago. Christian unity is called for by Christ and inspired by the Holy Spirit. I think we all agree with that as well, that we see in the scriptures, we see in the gospel that Christ called for unity, oneness. And what we have to acknowledge, if we read the Gospels, there at times was not that unity, even with Christ and his own disciples. Here we have Peter, that in our tradition, we believe he was the first of the popes. He was the one chosen to be that principle of unity, that unifier on behalf of Christ. It's always Christ unity that we're seeking, the unity of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the unity of the Trinity that flows out into us created in God's image. But certainly that unity falters with the, the human failings that are, are very apparent well before the time of the Reformation. What I would encourage as a perspective and many of the, the Holy Fathers, the popes, have spoken about the reality that the church is always in need of reform. And we can look to, in the history, from our perspective, many of the great saints were reformers. And so I guess a, a main aspect of, of what I would hope you can leave this evening with, as far as what I'm saying, is the idea that 
really through the ages, the church has been reforming, seeking to purify that unity and to be closer to the message that was revealed to us by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Going all the way back to where I began, just as I opened up this evening, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That gift, Jesus Christ is that principle of unity. And if we're looking for that in the perspective of history, we can see from the very beginning the need for reformation, the need for greater unity, because there's something about our human reality created in the image of God. There, the number of people in this room this evening, there are many things that we have different opinions about, different ideas, different perspectives. So the reality that we are commemorating from 500 years ago really isn't something just 500 years old. And to me, that's a great perspective that we can bring, not any deep theology, but just a common understanding that the body of Christ, this church that Christ established, whatever form it has taken, has always been challenged to be unified, to really live that unity. We can look to the very earliest centuries, the very earliest decades of the church, of the, the body that came to be called Christian. Then came to be used, the word Catholic was used. Really, very specifically meaning universal. We as Catholics are always going back to that. That's what Catholic means. And I think in many ways, that is the most important element that we can lose sight of when we think of Catholic as just, well, a certain group of people. Catholic in the sense of universal, it means that gift of God was a universal gift for all humanity, for every single human being from the time of Christ. It was meant to be us knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that is the unity that the church has always been seeking. And so from that perspective, reformation has been happening in the life of the church since the very beginning. Asking the questions. Many of the, the early years of the church were about sorting out basic questions. And there were many issues of, that created disunity. So I guess the, the reflection that I would offer you this evening primarily is to recognize that what the phenomenon that brought about the, the Protestant Reformation, the action of Martin Luther 500 years ago, really wasn't a new phenomenon. It was something the human body of the church had been struggling with from the very beginning. And I would hope that perspective would help us to recognize that <clears throat> just as the church in her beginning had to find ways to unify, that we can adopt that same perspective as well and seek 
unity in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> unity, universality, and the idea that we are all children of one God. Jesus Christ has come to all of us. What we have to acknowledge is that an awful lot of the world today and before, 500 years ago and before, there has always been a large part of the world that doesn't acknowledge Jesus Christ for all kinds of reasons. Some have really never, really never heard of him, not in any real sense. They may have heard the name, but any idea of who is Jesus Christ is not something they've really been uh, aware of. Even here in East Texas, we've run into people, and I would imagine a lot of you in your own churches have run into people who would come to us and say, who is this Jesus Christ? So part of the, the challenge for unity is to recognize he came to all humanity. I think that's a pretty common belief that we all share. His message is for everyone, every race, every nation, every human being. Through time, Jesus Christ, God's own son, came for all. That's the greatest unifier that we could have. He is the incarnation of unity. I guess I'd put it that way. And I think it, approaching it in that way, for one thing, one of the, the challenges we all face, and the recent Holy Fathers, especially Pope Francis, but really for, for many years, the, the popes have been encouraging us as Catholics to come to know Jesus Christ more deeply. And brothers and sisters, that is what I would propose is the greatest path to unity. Because he is one Lord, one Savior, one Jesus Christ. His body is divided up by its nature, all the individuals. And there are the separations into groups of those individuals. But Jesus Christ is the principle of unity. As God's own son among his own disciples, he prayed for that. It's one of his most powerful prayers if we look at what he says in the gospel and what he does. I would point that out as well. Christ didn't just speak about unity, but he promoted it in what he did. Think of the woman at the well, a story that probably all of us are very familiar with. And in that story, Christ is is personifying. He is the incarnation of what unity means. Because the woman at the well, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan, she has all kinds of elements of that divided world that Christ, God's own son, encountered. So in a very real sense, I think what, what we can be aware of as we gather this evening is that disunity I've spoken of it as something that the church has been challenged with since her very beginning, even among the disciples. Remember James and John saying, hey, we want, to be at the, we want to be at the top. Of course, it was their mom asking for that. But already, that tension of disunity was there among 12 only. And of course, 
Judas stepped away from that group and betrayed the Lord, those challenges of unity have always been there. And if we look even beyond that, the, the, the challenges of unity are part of human history. And so I think putting it in that context, I would hope, just reminds us, yes, it's a challenge. It always has been. And it reminds us of one of the reasons God gave his only begotten son, to bring his children together. There's probably nothing more important that I could say as we commemorate the 500 years ago, the Reformation, and try to reflect on that in 2017 than to acknowledge that we need that unity. We need to come together as one in all the divisions. There are divisions that none of us will be able to overcome in our lifetimes, most likely. But we can work toward greater unity with events like this. And so I would summarize my thoughts with that question of unity and the question of um, authority and the person of Jesus Christ. Those three elements are what I would hope we can, we can focus on, asking ourselves how can we promote and live unity more fully in each of our lives. It's, it's very basic, not getting into the, the complex theologies that we share in different ways and, and many of the different divisions come up from, but to look for unity and to ask the questions about authority. Certainly for us in the Catholic community, and there, there are many Catholics that have to grow in, in that understanding, but it ultimately is always the authority of Jesus Christ. One aspect of unity that is very significant for us, we speak of communion in the body of Christ in a very literal sense, as you're probably all aware, we believe when Christ said, take this bread, it is my body, take this wine, it is my blood, that we literally believe that. At the cathedral, a few blocks from here, when we celebrate Mass, we believe that bread and wine becomes the body and blood of Christ. That unifying factor is so significant for us. And I'm sure you, you see some of the questions that arise and the press may address questions of, of communion and how at times that causes divisions even within the Catholic Church. So to me, that's just another illustration of the great question of unity that we are challenged to deal with, to recognize it's really not a new question. And I guess that's the most important thing that I wanted us to be reminded of this evening as, as I said a few words. To recognize 500 years ago really wasn't the beginning. It was certainly an important moment because the, the disunity got more powerful than ever. But to recognize it's always been our challenge. To me, that brings hope 
And hopefully it brings hope to all of us that we really can address the issues because they are not new. And the church needs reformation. We constantly need to purify ourselves to follow Christ more fully. Father Joshua is going to take a, a focus. He's uh, studied scripture just a bit. Um, he speaks more languages than I can probably keep up with. But uh, Father Joshua is going to, to look at the scriptures specifically and the, the Catholic approach to scripture and, and how the, the Reformation affected that. Another aspect, I believe, of the whole question of unity, of understanding the same words in the same way. We're probably all aware that there's a great challenge in that. And even when, just a, a simple example before I um, let Father Joshua take over, to me that illustrates that, that basic principle that I wanted to discuss, that challenge of unity is nothing new. It's, it's part of who we are. One of the things we all deal with in the world today is email. And how many times have you sent an email, and I guess these days it's even text just as much, but how many times have you sent an email and someone responds and they took it totally wrong from what you meant to say? The same words heard in a very different way. To me, that's just an illustration that unity is something that is challenging to work toward. But our Lord and Savior prayed very clearly for unity, for oneness, and for the universality of the church to stretch out and reach every person. We can do that the most powerfully the more we are one with the Lord. And that oneness with him can overflow into a greater unity for each of us. So that is what I wanted to focus on as we reflect on the whole moment of the Reformation 500 years ago. It's a call to unity and a recognition that that unity was something that has been elusive for really the history of humanity since God created us in his image. There have been tendencies to division. Let us pray, as Christ our Lord did, for unity among his body, among the people of God. Thank you. Okay, so, first of all, thank you, Bishop Strickland, for your lovely talk. Uh, I was reminded, in particular, uh, this focus on unity, and of course, in Acts of the Apostles, we see that come up frequently as a theme. Uh, you mentioned the thing with languages. And one of my favorite words in Acts of the Apostles that appears a couple of times, it, it sounds like a dinosaur, it's hamathumadon in Greek, which means of one accord. They were all hamathumadon. Uh, it sounds kind of, yeah, it's like a Tyrannosaurus Rex or something. So also thank you to Pastor Brayton, especially this has been, you've been very welcoming and I'm thrilled to be able to talk a little bit to everybody here tonight. Uh, a couple of things before I really get into it. Uh, I'll be focusing not in a lot of detail on some of the history because I think it's extraordinarily complex, uh, but I want to focus on some of the Catholic 
theological claims that arose out of the period of the Reformation. In the first place, I want to do this because I think there are a lot of misunderstandings about what Catholics believe. So actually, I've been reading a novel uh, lately called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, and there are some young people who are quite Southern and uh, appear to be quite Protestant in the novel. And in one of their conversations, one of them tells the other one, you know, Catholics, you know, they give a pistol to a baby as soon as it's born. All of them have pistols so that they can start a war because they mean to kill everybody. Not true. It's definitely a misunderstanding. It's definitely a misunderstanding of what Catholics are doing around here. But there are a lot of misunderstandings about what Catholics believe and what we teach. Uh, so I, I'm hoping that what we can do is see two things. One is a couple of ways in which the church, the Catholic church, clarified our own teaching in response to the Reformation. So this was a challenge to us to clarify what we believe. And in doing so, I'm hoping that it will clarify for anyone else here what the church uh, believes, what the Catholic church believes. That makes sense? So all about clarity. Uh, before, again, before I get into it, a couple other quick points. Um, the first is, with the history, I think it's important just to keep in mind, uh, history is more complex than good guys versus bad guys. And I think a lot of times when we've been discussing this kind of topic over the last couple hundred years, uh, there's been a focus on the us versus them, a good guys versus bad guys kind of mentality. My hometown was a very German town, and on the west side of town was the Catholic Church. On the east side of town was the Lutheran Church. On the west side of town was the Catholic Bank. On the east side of town was the Lutheran Bank. Exactly parallel on the same streets. And on the west side of town was the Catholic Cemetery. And parallel to that, the Lutheran Cemetery on the east side of town. And you didn't date that Lutheran girl. Mm -hmm. But there's a kind of an us versus them mentality that can kind of creep in. But the reality is the history is much more complex than that. We know that there were reasonable and rash decisions made on all sides because these are human beings. So I just want to keep that in the back of our heads when we're discussing this sort of thing, that the history can become an us versus them or it can actually be an honest look at a complex thing. As Catholics, one of the uh, consistent experiences of the church is this experience of reform. And this comes up with doctrinal disputes. This is not new for us. We've been through a lot of doctrinal disputes throughout our history. Uh, I want to give you a perspective of what the church is doing when she's teaching us. When the Catholic Church says we're going to teach this, what's the church trying to do? And I, maybe this will be a good uh, diagram. I want you to imagine being Christian, being Christians together, a bit like playing a baseball game. And if you are out on the sandlot playing the game, you might not have an outfield fence. And that's okay, because you're playing in the sandlot. That's great. You're all together playing the game. Everyone's having a good time. As a Christian, what this would mean is we are studying the sacred scripture. We are trying to come more deeply to understand who Christ is, what he did for us, and what he's doing for us now. We're discussing this in our communities of faith as believers in order to pursue the Lord more deeply, right? That's the basic game of Christianity. Well, if everyone's already doing that, we don't need a fence. We're just hanging out. We're a bunch of kids playing the game. We've all got the same rules, same basic idea. We know pretty much where the fence is in the outfield. We don't need to build one. The Catholic Church basically, in experiences of doctrinal disputes and disagreements, says, okay, guys, some of you just went beyond where the fence is. Now, I know the fence wasn't clear. The fence wasn't clear. We didn't have one marked out. But now that we're kind of playing this and we see that some of you over here, 
we want to make sure that we clarify where the limits are to this game, where the limits are to what we believe Christ is teaching. So the church clarifies throughout history in response to doctrinal disputes, disputes about what we believe. We'll clarify and kind of put a little fence there, add a little fence here, and say, okay, don't, don't play out that way. That's a little too far the wrong way. We're playing over here. Does that make sense? That's kind of the perspective that we would have on a lot of our history and a lot of our clarification of doctrines. So I want to talk about two, hopefully, two points in which the Catholic Church responding to uh, Martin Luther especially, but other reformers as well, clarified our teaching. And add a little fence here. The first one will be our teaching about what sacred scripture is and the role of sacred scripture in the church, as Bishop Strickland introduced. And the second one will be, uh, backed by popular demand, will be about a little bit about justification. So, <laughs> clarifying our teaching about scripture. Uh, I'm probably not going to cite everything that's on the slides, but that will be up there just for you to kind of reference as I'm talking. As uh, many of us know, for Luther and many of the reformers, the fundamental claim about scripture is that it is, uh, in addition to Christ, it is the uh, only authority in matters of faith and practice. It is, we would describe that as a sola scriptura. The scripture is the, sort of the final authority. I don't want to speak out of turn and give a bad description, but this would be a a general way of describing it. That scripture is the final authority. This is opposed to a claim that uh, a particular churchman has a standardizing authority. A particular churchman has an authority to teach uh, over and above somebody else in the church. Uh, but rather that the scripture is sort of the, the sole authority, the sola scriptura. Uh, that should be generally familiar. Uh, after the development of the early days of the Reformation, uh, we, the Catholic Church had to clarify, both uh, in response to the Reformers and for ourselves, how we saw sacred scripture within the church. What we thought about the role of sacred scripture, what kind of authority it has. We certainly believe that scripture is inerrant. We certainly believe that scripture is inspired by God. We certainly believe all these things. But what's the role of scripture in our community of faith? You've probably heard terms like, uh, scripture and tradition, and Catholics believing in scripture and tradition. And that's basically what the church is trying to clarify. So I'll leave this quote up there. You may glance a little bit more at the red while I'm talking. Uh, this is from the Council of Trent, which was in the 16th century in response to the reformers to clarify our teachings. It's what the reformers forced us to clarify our understandings. The fundamental idea about scripture for Catholics is that it may not be the only authority, but rather it is part of a general authoritative work of Christ in the church. It looks a little bit more like this. Christ comes down from heaven. God made man, a man. And he reveals who he is. That Christ reveals, as it were, his divine face. He shows us the face of God. Christ is God and man. He's showing us who God is in a deep and intimate way. He's revealing to us things that we couldn't have known on our own. So, for example, we know that God exists, but also many pagan philosophers would believe that God exists. A lot of non-Catholics, non-Christians, non-anything could figure that out. Greek philosophers got that far, but we didn't get on our own to things like the Holy Trinity. The deep, intimate life of God is something that we can't figure out by ourselves. Christ has to show it to us. 
So in Hebrews, beginning of Hebrews, we hear about how in the ancient times he was revealed through the prophets and the other writings. And then finally, in these last days, through his son, he's revealed to us. God reveals himself to us. That's the fundamental thing. The first thing that we start off with is Christ reveals God himself to us and details about who God is. Christ also reveals teachings for us. So that's going to be teachings like the existence of heaven and hell and how the afterlife works. It could be teachings about justification. Uh, a whole variety of things. Christ is teaching us doctrine as well. And he also instructs us on how to live. So he's teaching us truth and discipline as well as who he is. This, this quote here is going to be from the Second Vatican Council. This was in the 60s, uh, which is, goes even further in our explanation and clarification of these teachings. So we have this divine revelation. Christ reveals himself. And from that divine revelation, uh, we get Christ himself, God himself, uh, reveals himself, and the doctrine and practices that he expects of us. The next question for Catholics becomes, how do we get that? How do we get access to that? Because Christ came in a historical moment. So Christ comes in a historical moment 2,000 years ago. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. Pentecost. Holy Spirit comes down. How do we get access to what Christ revealed about himself and his doctrine and the moral practices he expects of us? The first issue for us would be that the early days of Christianity are somewhat distinct from our own because we had the apostles walking around, but they're not completely different from our own. If you went to Antioch or if you went to Alexandria and you met a Christian in 40 AD and you asked him what Bible he got this from, he wouldn't tell you any books of the New Testament, right? They didn't have it. But they were still able to be fully Christian. Even if there, weren't an, there wasn't an apostle there next to them, they were still able to be Christian. So what this means is that there is some aspect of the teaching of Christ which is already happening without written words yet. Everyone's job, we would think, as Catholics, we would think that everyone's job in the early church is to take the teaching of Christ, what he revealed by himself, his doctrine, and the moral practices, and sort of throw them on, hand them on from one generation to the next. We all do this today in our own experience with children, especially when we're teaching them about who Jesus is before they can read. We are handing on the teachings of Jesus. We're handing on the moral practices that he would expect. We're handing on who he is in a fundamental way by our normal life as Christians, by our normal life as church people. So in our worship, we are passing on that teaching. That was happening right from the beginning, and it continued happening. So they're passing on the teachings of Christ. There's a particular and important moment of that passing on, which is the writing of sacred scripture. And the writing of sacred scripture is a moment of handing on. It's a really important one because it gives us a standard text, which we know is inspired by God. But it also is one moment within that general handing on of the faith. Handing on, by the way, in Latin is traditio. You're traditioning the faith when you're handing it on from one person to another. So that's what we mean by tradition. It's not simply like a secret message, like oral tradition. It's not quite that. It's such a very public thing. It's when in 50 AD, uh, the friends of the apostles were preaching. That's tradition. 
And it's when in 1000 AD, the descendants of those men were preaching the same message. That's tradition. One of the places where this gets, oh, and side note, you even see some of this evidence in, evidence in the scripture itself. So like when Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, handed over to you. Uh, in Latin, it's actually tradidi coreta cepi. I handed over, tradidi, like tradition. Uh, I handed over to you. Uh, he's suggesting that he's already handed over the teaching and that now he's writing about it. So the handing over of that teaching has already happened. They've already got it even before they have this scriptural text that we now have. And he also says, what you learned and received and heard and seen in me do, he's not talking about the text, he's talking about what they've learned from him and received from him and heard him say and seen him do. So we have actually evidence, I think, of this aspect of tradition in the scripture, and there's a great uh, Scandinavian Lutheran who talks about that too. Um, <laughs> okay, so this last aspect, what we would call the magisterium. Bishop Strickland brought, brought up this idea of authority. And so in the Council of Trent, and then in Vatican II especially, they're clarifying this concept of a church authority. We call it the magisterium. Magisterium from the Latin magisterium. Magister, master or teacher. So the magisterium, when you hear me say magisterium, that means the church as teacher. As I said earlier, the church as teacher is fundamentally clarifying clarifying what we believe Christ taught, what he wants us to hand on from one generation to the next. So the magisterium of the church, the church as a teacher, is just clarifying. The churches, hopefully, would never invent a new doctrine, but rather clarify a doctrine that we already believed that needs a little bit more clarification. This idea of the church as a teaching authority, we already see happening when we talk about the existence of scripture itself, this would be the church's perspective, the Catholic church's perspective on this in response to some of the claims of the reformers. We, we would think that we already see this importance of this teaching authority in the formation of scripture. Let me give an example. This is one of my favorite dudes in the history of Christianity. Um, there's a book called The Ecclesiastical History by a man named Eusebius. And he's describing the history of early Christianity. He talks about a bishop named Serapion. It's a little vignette. If you, like, if you blink, you'll miss it, but it's a really cool story. So this guy, uh, a couple centuries in, uh, Saint Serapion, um, he's a bishop, and he receives a new text. Now, of course, not everybody got the letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthians got that, so it takes time for it to spread around. So not everybody who's in Rome has heard of the letter to the Corinthians right when the Corinthians get it, you know? Well, he gets this new text. Somebody says, this is, this is by Peter. This is actually the gospel of Peter. He says, I didn't know Peter wrote a gospel. Which, of course, we don't have the gospel of Peter in the New Testament. He says, I didn't know Peter wrote a gospel. Let me look at this. So he gives it a look. And he decides, no, this is not inspired word of God. But why not? He can't make a judgment except by the doctrine that he already has. He already has a rule of faith. And it's that rule of faith which allows him to determine which book counts as scripture and which book doesn't. It's that rule of faith that he already has, that's been traditioned to him, that he is able to determine what books count and what books don't. And he says, this one, obviously not written by Peter, and you know, not, uh, not the inspired word of God, because it doesn't match what we already believe, what we were handed down 
but was handed down to us by those who came before. This idea here would be that scripture and tradition and the church's magisterium are all integrally related. So it's not that scripture doesn't have a very strong authority in the church. In fact, the church's magisterium is constantly turning back to look at scripture as a fundamental moment, a standardizing moment of that handing on of the faith. The scripture is really a rule for us, but at the same time, it's not the only aspect of that rule. It's, a, it's part of this whole, we like to say in theology classes, a hermeneutic circle, that everything is kind of mixed up together, and not one of the three, for Catholics, we would think not one of the three, scripture, tradition, or magisterium, could stand really without the other. It doesn't fit without the whole of it. So that would be the church's general response to uh, the emphasis on scripture as a sole or final or complete authority, or however you would want to describe that, uh, which would come out of some aspects of the reformers. Oh, yep. Uh, before we get to the next one, I'm going to have a sip of water. <laughs> also, I guess, as a side note with that, one of the difficulties then is, like, there are so many disagreements, which is unfortunate, about what the text says, but if we don't have a rule of faith Outside of the text and a governing authority outside of the text, the church would find that to be difficult to adjudicate. Um, if we're all equally authoritative with our own with the scripture, the Catholic Church would find that to be a a cause of future disagreement and discord. So, I think that aspect of that teaching authority uh, is fundamental, especially because it, the claim is that it's able not only to determine what scripture counts, but also what the fundamental teaching of scripture is. It's able to make the fence for us, for our Christianity. Um, all right, so next topic that I said I would try to show the church clarified her teaching. I will grant fully that uh, the official uh, teaching of the church on justification was not extraordinarily clear in 1500, and it got a lot clearer over the next 100 years. The reality is that a lot of people who, uh, who were part of the reform movements uh, didn't have a lot of standard documents that the church was publishing. It's not like they had just had Vatican II to explain justification for them. Um, that clarity didn't come until decades later, after, frankly, the discussion had gotten, uh, had gone awry on all counts. You know, there, was, uh, there wasn't a whole lot coming back together in the 1540s and 1550s, as far as the Catholic Church with some of the reformers go. So, unfortunately, the church didn't respond very quickly uh, to the issues of justification, but now the church was able to respond, I think, with a lot of clarity that for us has been really important for our understanding of our lives as Catholic Christians. Hopefully, uh, we'll at least give you a little bit of understanding of your non-Catholic neighbors, of your Catholic neighbors, excuse me. Ugh. All right, so necessary starting point. Uh, a lot of people think that Catholics believe that we earn our own salvation. I just want to say, no Catholic ever believes that we earn our own salvation. Period. There's a big mistake. Like, we don't have pistols that we give to babies. We don't, <laughs> we don't believe that we earn our own salvation. Again, we do not believe that we could earn our own salvation. That's not what we mean when we talk about faith and works. Really, it's a misunderstanding when people think Catholics believe that we earn our own salvation. Fundamentally, we believe that salvation and justification are a gift from God. I think we all share that. Salvation and justification are a gift from God, period. We are not Pelagians. Um, 
Okay. So the teaching of the Council of Trent in response to uh, in response to the emphasis on faith and without uh, without a clear emphasis on works as being part of what justifies us uh, from some of the reformers, the Council of Trent uh, in the 1500s, the church clarified our teaching. Now, if you look up here, this is like a standard quote on, from the what's called the Decree on Justification. And I want you to keep your eyes out for works. Keep your eyes out for the word works or merits. What's the final cause of justification? To understand justification, we want to talk about the causes of it. That's how Catholics like to talk anyways. The final cause, what's the goal of justification? It's the glory of God and of Christ and eternal life for us. That's the goal of being justified. Justification leads to God being glorified and hopefully eternal life for us. What's the efficient cause? What's the thing or the person that justifies? Who's the agent who, uh, who pushes the justify button? That's God, the merciful God who gratuitously washes and sanctifies, sealing and anointing with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the earnest of our inheritance. Mm. So the efficient cause, the final cause is God's glory and our eternal life. And the efficient cause, the one doing it, is God. What's the meritorious cause? That means um, what merited, what earned justification? Not us. It wasn't me. It was his most beloved, only begotten, our Lord Jesus Christ who we were enemies for the great charity with, wherewith he loved us, merited justification for us by his holy passion in the world of the cross and made for us satisfaction unto God the Father. The instrumental cause, how does it come to us? Sacrament of baptism, which is the sacrament of faith. Faith. So basically, as Catholics, we believe that sacrament of baptism both expresses and imparts faith to the person who receives it. Faith is the instrument of justification for Catholics. Lastly, the formal cause uh, is the justice of God. Uh, and we even heard last week a little bit about this idea of justice. Uh, the justice of God is not simply his justice on his own, but it's what makes us just. It's not something makes us just, it makes us just, not simply like declaring us just, but we believe that God, who is just, as the just God is making us just through faith, by his grace. I think that's all pretty cool. I think that that, to a non-Catholic, should sound like it fits, you know? Okay. I'm not pretending like there's no disagreement. <laughs> I just want to emphasize, like, this is fundamental. So what does it look like for a Catholic? It looks like um, God, in his gracious mercy, comes down and he earns our salvation. And then he gives it to us through us getting faith at the sacrament of baptism. And he does it because he just wanted to. Okay. So where do works come in? Glance at the red. Having therefore been thus justified, this is from Trent again, having therefore been thus justified, that is, you know, by grace, through faith, etc., as we just saw. Skip down. Those people who have been justified through the observance of the commandments of God and of the church, their faith cooperating with good works, increase in the justice received through the grace of Christ and are still more justified. That's a big sentence. So here's the idea for a Catholic. It's not that we earn our own salvation by works. It's that God justifies us by his grace, merited by the cross of Christ, through faith. The thief on the cross who has faith is justified. He didn't do anything afterwards. 
He's justified though, because he has faith. And then after that, once you're in that situation of being justified already, that, that whole process has begun, once you're playing in the field of Christianity, then your justice before God, your holiness before God, increases as you perform good works, which by the way, are inspired in you by the grace of God. So God justifies you by his grace through faith. And then by his grace, he impels you to do good works. And then he rewards you with greater justice and holiness for the good works that he inspired in you. It's kind of sweet. It's all about God. Okay, so step one, Christ earns for Catholics, it would be Christ earns our salvation for the glory of God and to show his justice by which he makes us just. Step two, we are initially justified by faith, in particular at the reception of baptism. Step three, this is where works come in. We grow in justice and holiness in our union with God through faith, through acts of faith and through good works. So let's get a little bit more clarity here um, about this idea of uh, growing in that justice and holiness for God. Sometimes you'll hear Catholics use the term merit, uh, which comes up in the Council of Trent. We saw that Christ merited our redemption, our justification. Christ is the meritorious cause. Christ suffering on the cross is the meritorious cause. This idea of merit to earn something. To give a perspective on what Catholics mean when we say that about us meriting something. You don't hear this used very much. But every once in a while you'll hear it. I'm afraid it confuses people. What we think is that Christ has actually promised us, uh, and we see this, we believe, in divine revelation in the sacred scripture, that Christ promises us a reward for our good works among the just. So those who have been justified, we believe that he promises us rewards for our good works. So our good works, which he inspires in us, merit, earn, in kind of a generic sense, a reward from him. And that reward is an increase in justice and holiness before God an increase of union with God over time, and ultimately eternal life. We would get this idea of, sorry, just to be clear, it's not that God owes us that, it's that he decided to promise us that. God doesn't owe us a reward for anything good that we do, because we only, our existence is only because of him, but it's that he decided, he set up a system to where when you are justified already, that he will reward you for good works, which he inspires in you anyways. So it's not that he owes it to us, it's that he set it up that way as by his own free will. That's what we would believe. Some scripture verses that we would, that a Catholic would use to, or where a Catholic would see this playing out, this idea of uh, good works and reward among the justified, uh, which increase their justice and holiness, which merit a future reward. Um, these are not, I'm not, I don't want you to think of these as proof text. I know I have them listed, and the only reason I'm doing this is because it's short, it's short time. But uh, I know each of these texts can be debated at length. I get that. Um, but I think that with that description that I just gave, you should be able to see how a Catholic would read these kinds of texts and how they would see what I was describing in them already. So Christ himself says, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry and you did something. You gave me food. For I was thirsty and you gave me drink, etc., 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 so there's a reward. Come and receive this that's been prepared for you as a reward for doing these good things. Of course, this is only among the already just. In Matthew 25, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little things. 
I will set you over much. Therefore, enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 19. And everyone who, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, that is, they already believe, so they're doing this for Jesus. They're already a believer. Those people who do those things will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. It sounds a bit like, do this, I reward you for it, once you're in the system. And in Luke, give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for the measure which you measure will be the measure you get back. You give, and you get back. This is a fundamental aspect for us of this system of an increase of a reward of an increase of justice and holiness before God, an increase of union with him. Uh, it even comes up in St. Paul's writings and some of the epistles. We see this in a few places. We're not talking about works of the law, by the way, at all, which Paul talks about frequently. And he, he says that works of the law are you know, of no avail. But we're talking about, uh, we're talking about uh, good works on a moral level. So, uh, and again, I know each of these verses can be well debated. I've, I've read many of the debates. I get it. But so you can see the perspective that a Catholic would have. Even on St. Paul's writings, we would see, for he will render to every man according to his works. These are not works of the law, but Paul's talking about works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, do bad works, uh, they, there will be wrath and fury. That's Romans. Uh, this is a delightful little one. 1 Corinthians 3, 8. He who plants and he who waters are equal, and each shall receive his wages according to his labor. So receiving wages is a payment. It's a reward system. That is, the increase of justice and holiness before God, and ultimately one day, eternal life. Not that you earned it, because God is the one who set you up in the whole system of justification in the first place, and he's the one who's moving you to do these good works and then rewarding you for what he's moved you to do, which is very generous. Uh, Colossians 3, whatever you, your task, work heartily as serving the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So it's not simply have faith, but also when you have faith, also work heartily, and this is part of how you will receive the reward. And then, of course, uh, one of the famous ones for us uh, would be James 2, 24. So it says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Often we would wonder how that works aspect gets into it. See that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. The idea is that it's only for those who are already justified by faith, by, through, by grace through the act of faith in baptism. So this works aspect is not them earning salvation or justification in the first place, but it's part of the system that the Lord has set up to reward us uh, by an increase of holiness. And finally, I'm going to skip out of the scripture for a minute and into what I would like to call an evidence of early tradition. Just so you can see another aspect of this, uh, I want to look at a little quote from St. Augustine. I bring this up in part because I know many uh, non-Catholics are actually quite familiar with the writings of Augustine. Augustine was an, uh, an early churchman who was responding frequently to the heresy of Pelagianism, who the Pelagians did believe that you could earn your own salvation. That is their claim. And so Augustine is responding to that. He's often focusing on faith and not on works. That makes sense. Uh, Luther definitely uh, followed very closely a lot of what Augustine said, and many of the reformer, other reformers did too. But just so you can see that even this idea of works, uh, exalting one's justice and holiness before God, 
uh, is even in Augustine in some, pla in some places. I think this is a good, kind of captures it. So what merit of man is there before grace? What merit do you have before grace? Nothing. What merit of man is there before grace by which that man could achieve grace? You can't get grace by earning it yourself, period. As only grace works every one of our good merits in us, the merits that we have are moved by grace. And as God, when he crowns our merits, crowns nothing else but his own gift. The idea is, again, with justification for Catholics, the church tried to clarify in the Council of Trent, and it has been very important for us since. Uh, so thank you for the reform, because it clarifies this for us over time. Uh, is that God moves us by his grace to accept him in faith, thereby and he justifies us through that. Then he moves us by his grace to make acts of faith and perform good works. Then he crowns the works that we perform, which are ultimately his, with reward within this life uh, by an increase of justice and holiness, and one day, God willing, by his grace, in eternal life. Thank you. Stay put. That's okay. great. That's great. Uh, first of all, he did not introduce himself, but that was uh, Mark Brayton, senior pastor of our Savior's Lutheran Church, <laughs> who started us off this evening. So thank you, Mark, for last week doing a tremendous job and for starting us off. And my name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here in this context. And we are so delighted that you were here. And I just want to say thank you to Bishop Strickland and to Father Knight, you guys incredibly gracious to come into uh, this setting, if you will, not home field advantage. So thank you for playing an away game on Thursday. We really are thankful. You've been very gracious. And so as we've said all along for this six-week lecture series, we do not want to turn this into any sort of uh, hostile, polemic-type environment. We want this to be ironic discussion. And so I want to reinforce and reemphasize that this is an ironic, peaceable conversation. So what we would like to do is just take a few moments to take a few of your questions. Um, if you have any questions for these gentlemen, we would love to facilitate those. If you get feisty and rowdy, we have secret deacons po positioned all over the room. <laughs> they will take you down. Uh, and they, they haven't done it in a long time, so they're a little bit itchy to do so. So... Uh, if you guys don't mind taking a few questions, would you yeah, be willing to do that? To. Yeah, most Marvelous. Certainly. Okay, any questions? And you, here's the deal. You get to speak into a microphone, okay? All right, Shane, here I go. Oh, yeah, you're the one who can read but not drink from last week? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I suggested some bourbon up there for the Catholic priest. For hey, man, I'm, I'm happy if, you, if it, you've got it did, some. It, it didn't uh, I know you're in public now, so. Yeah. I'll, I'll work on it. I'll, I'll work on it. <laughs> Can you go back to the slide with the baseball? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. That's, uh, you know, ways back. It's playoffs. There we go. So I just kind of made that quickly. Just to be yeah, clear. I think it's great. I think that's great. A thought and, then, and a question. Mm -hmm. So as a Protestant, I, I like this baseball field analogy. Okay. And, and let me express this to you about the baseball field analogy and kind of as a Protestant how I read it. And then I have a question completely unrelated to that. All right. Cool. So with the baseball field analogy, as a Protestant, I'm thinking sola scriptura. I think of that as a closed system. There's, there's a game there, if you will, with rules, and it's defined, and it's always limited. And if you add on top of that tradition, it seems like it's an open system. 
and the rules become subject to change, and you don't know exactly where the walls are. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And so it, I, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, or if yeah, that, that maybe that may be completely foreign, or maybe no, no, I that, I think that I understand analogy too far. The unrelated issue I had, the question I had, has nothing to do with justification, uh-huh. but it has to do with imagination. Some of my favorite writers are Catholic writers. So I've got you here. So I, lo- I love Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy and, 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 some, and some writers like that. And, and, it, and, I, and there's something about Catholic writers that have this great imagination. And I wonder if you could just do a couple of minutes on how the Catholic Church may – there seems to be something about it that provokes imagination sure. in its members. That's, those are excellent questions. Thank you. Um, just to follow up on what uh, Eric was saying earlier, I, I hope that no one took anything that I said in a polemical sense. I really do. I was, as I said at the beginning, I think there are a lot of misunderstandings, even among our own Catholics, about what Catholics believe. And so I, I hope that it was more clarifying. I, I hope it didn't come off as a fight. I really don't want that. Um, great questions. <laughs> um, this baseball field analogy, like you said, it seems like soul scriptura. The scripture itself, sorry, scripture itself is already a closed system, and that's kind of part of the point of the, uh, the doctrine of soul scripture is that it is a closed system already. And I understand your hesitation about the concept of tradition because it looks like it can go awry. Um, people say a lot of crazy things. And uh, certainly even some bishops in the early church and some preachers in the early church said some crazy things. We can think of people like Arius who said crazy things. And one of the questions becomes, why doesn't that count? This is part of this is where this aspect of the magisterium comes in. Okay, it's not that we think everything that anybody ever said is inspired in the way that scripture is inspired by any means, but it's that that constant passing on of the doctrines of the church, which sometimes people might pass on other things too, um, but that that tradition, that passing on of the doctrine of the church, is guided by God. That's protected by God, more than God. I think protected by God is a better way of describing it. And that the magisterium of the church would be able to, to clarify when someone is going off balance with that. We would believe, uh, in fact, that this overall act of tradition, not every single person's, every single act of handing on the faith being inspired, but that this overall act of tradition is protected by God in a holistic way. So that means... As it says that, you know, one of our famous texts that we like to cite a lot would be Matthew 16. Uh, And in Matthew 16, when Jesus promises the keys to the kingdom of heaven to Peter, he says the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. We see that as a protective clause. We would see that as Christ promising a guidance and protection against error. Because um, to lose the, the, what Jesus revealed about God himself, what he revealed in his teachings and in the moral practices, if we lost that as a Christian people, that sounds like hell. Losing, losing who God is, that sounds a lot like hell. So we would see that as a protective clause. It's a protective clause for tradition in general and for very specific rulings of the church's teaching body in, in particular. Um, that, what that looks like over time, and one of the reasons why uh, there is why there might appear to some people to be a change here and there, or maybe something slipped in, Catholics would describe this uh, progression of changing language and whatnot, describing these, the truths that we believe, uh, using some terms that actually come primarily from uh, Cardinal Newman in England, um, who ta- described what we call the development of doctrine. 
So the idea is that we have the doctrine at the beginning and we can pierce more deeply into understanding it over time. All, we're not changing or, develop, or changing doctrine or progressing in doctrine, but rather piercing more deeply into understanding that same doctrine. So there can be a, uh, a multiplication of ways of describing things, but the idea would be that protected by uh, the Holy Spirit and by, by the grace promised by Christ to his church, uh, we can pierce more deeply into the mysteries that he's revealed. I don't know if that's going to be satisfying, um, because I think it probably sounds very foreign. And uh, I want to suggest that in certain sense it is foreign, because you, you probably, I think you said last week that you were a Baptist, is that right? Yeah, so you, you, you're, you don't have uh, some of the, the big uh, hierarchical structures that the Catholic Church has. Um, and so I know that some of that aspect can seem foreign. But I just want to suggest that, uh, as a way of understanding, that um, the, the idea that God protected and guided the sacred writers of the Bible to say all and only that which the Lord desired them to say, such that they're composing an inerrant word of God, is no more surprising than the idea to a Catholic, would be no more surprising to the, than the idea um, that God is protecting the integrity of Christian doctrine through this church throughout time. It might not always be pretty, and that's why sometimes some of the texts of scripture um, look a little funky. It might not always be pretty. Um, some of the Old Testament texts that people like to poke, in, poke at us are not always pretty, but we can believe that, in fact, God is guiding and protecting those sacred writers, and likewise, in a holistic way, a Catholic would also believe that God is protecting his church um, from losing the true doctrine, protecting the church as a whole from going awry, um, and protecting the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, from making false uh, dictations about what we believe. Uh, that's not, for us, a continuing revelation. As I was saying, it's a, clear, it's a continuing clarification of what we believe God revealed. Does that make a little bit of sense, at least, as a, a perspective? Or is that? Yeah, I think it does. When it, as a Baptist, I think about Scripture, and, and of course, we hold, and I'm not saying you don't, it's a hold such a high view of Scripture that we would say it's never failed. But it seems as though, from the outside looking in, that there are times at which the traditions of the church have failed. Like, as a priest, I don't even know if you're allowed to say this, I guess, but, I mean, would you say that, like, one or two of the Medici popes may not have been the best? Yeah, okay, so, um, we right. so, yeah, yeah, like, can we, I don't know if you can even agree on that, but, like, as No, there were some really bad dudes. I mean, okay. um, so, that's just a fact. I think, like, yeah. yeah. So, as a Baptist, it seems like calling a Medici pope a successor to the apostle, boy, that's, that's off-putting. Yeah, really, I can't believe. Really, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Boy, I mean, you're kind of... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we got to hang out I, later, man. Hey, this is no, great. I, I love I you. I think that's right. I, I think a clarified view of justification by way of Martin Luther is a great thing that came out of the Medici popes. And so in response to that, I would say, yes, yes. something did great. Come sort of, of yeah. But, I mean, you, you would agree that there are times at which yeah. the, the traditions have not lived up to the word, sure. right? And so that's, that's why I think of it as an open system. And, and it's really hard to wrap my mind around trusting a system that could mm -hmm. lead to a Medici Pope. Yeah, uh, that's a great question and a great point. Um, so to clarify about this, when we're talking about the Popes and their role, we have to distinguish something about it. 
we believe as Catholics, and this is clear, clearly expressed in, in the first Vatican Council, the end of the 19th century, um, not that popes are always good. In fact, um, we believe that many of them were jerks. Um, that's not a doctrine of the faith, but it's just a fact. Um, yeah, there were some really bad dudes. I got a friend who he likes to joke. If I, he says, if I were the Pope, I would be Alexander the Twelfth. There haven't been eleven Alexander popes. So I would be Alexander the Twelfth. I say why? He says because I would be twice as bad as Alexander the Sixth, who was awful. Just as a joke, obviously. Yeah, there would be some bad guys. That's true. The, um, the for Catholics, we're not talking about people being good people when they're teaching. We're talking about a very precise act. Um, it's when the Pope or the bishops in council, uh, as the formal teaching body of the church, make an authoritative declaration on faith or morals to be believed by the entire church. That's where that protective aspect of the Holy Spirit's work actually happens. So it's not when one of the medieval popes was um, doing inappropriate things. Uh, it's not then. That's not where the protection is happening. It's not protecting him from uh, being sinful or something. It's protecting him from failing, in t from, from teaching errant doctrine when it counts. Um, and that's all it's doing. That's the limit set of that protection for the magisterium. So what does that mean? Um, that means that if uh, the Pope and I are walking down the street one day and um, I say, man, this is crazy, like, uh, what do you think about this and that in politics? And he says whatever he thinks. We don't think that that's guided by God in some way. Uh, or if I say, or if, if he makes an offhand or off-color remark, that doesn't mean that that's like protected or something. Or if he does something heinous, that's not protected. It's very specific. He could even be um, speak. We would believe that he could even be speaking to me and say all kinds of crazy things. But when it counts the most, namely when he's teaching as the successor of Peter in a formal way for the whole church, on faith and morals only, um, then we say he cannot err. So it's that he can be the worst guy ever, but in that specific case, Christ is still protecting this kind of teaching, and that's protecting the church. Christ has established a boundary that he will not allow that pope to cross. Um, I, I would actually suggest that, um, with, you know, with the history aspects of this, uh, just reading some of the history of the, of the bad popes, um, and some of the crazy popes, uh, you'll notice that they don't, they don't change doctrine, period. They're not changing official doctrine, period. Um, some of them might have been crazy, and they just didn't change official doctrine of the church, period. Uh, that just, I don't find that. Maybe you will, but, uh, but I don't. And that's what's so shocking about it, is that to us, we would say, okay, this is actually, we believe this to be revealed, and then we actually see it playing out in history. Your second question was about uh, Catholic a Catholic sort of sense of why, why do Catholics have this imagination? Why does it come out in literature in particular? Um, we see this, I, there's actually, there's a great little essay by a guy named Hilaire Belloc where he, uh, he lists, he's a Catholic and he's, a, he's really polemical. He's kind of a jerk actually. Um, <laughs> but he, he, he lists off all the different kinds of cheeses that he can think of, cheese. Um, and he says, and so we see, you know, there are, you know, 150 kinds of cheese from France and this many cheeses from England, and this many cheeses from Spain and Italy, and then Turkey has this, and, and he says, um, he says, uh, so if we tally it up, the Catholic nations have this many cheeses, it's like 500. The, 
the, the non-Catholic Christian nations have like 300 and the Islamic nations have 40. And so by cheese alone, we, we actually find that uh, Catholicism must be the true faith, he says. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good argument, but it's, I think the point is, is, is made that uh, there, is a, there is an emphasis on this imaginative and this kind of engagement with the world in that way that he was pointing out uh, with cheese even. Um, the, the thing about Catholicism, I think, that uh, causes this imaginative aspect. So when you see like Tolkien or O'Connor, um, some of these other Catholic writers uh, that seem to have this, this kind of piercing imagination, um, it comes back to what we describe as a sacramental view of reality. So earlier, Bishop Strickland was talking about how we believe at, that at Mass, the bread and wine is transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Um, Earlier, I was talking about how uh, our works, our physical labor even, uh, to do good is part of uh, that whole system of being exalted in justice and holiness before God. For a Catholic, the, not just my soul, um, but my body, the whole world, is infused in some way with the workings of God and with his grace. doesn't mean that everything that happens in the world is like great and perfect. It means that God is active in and through our own world. So we would see that if the, if the bread actually becomes the body and blood, bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, it looks like God can work with the natural created reality. Um, there's this, then this tradition of seeing uh, grace as it works out uh, through, the, even in the physical world, not in like some manipulative, weird way, uh, but just recognizing that the whole world is sort of crying out the glory of God and that we experience that as Catholics, particularly in the sacraments. So the water of baptism actually washes us of sin. It, it's a physical thing that has a spiritual effect. The words of absolution from the priest when he says, I absolve you from your sins, um, that means that Christ, through that act, is, gonna, is absolving that sinner. That there's a spiritual reality that's affected by a physical reality. Uh, we anoint people before they die with holy oil, as is described in uh, the Epistle of James, I think, um, where you go to, the, you go to the, the presbyter and he anoints you with oil, and the prayer of the, of, of the righteous will save the sick person. Um, the prayer of the church will save the sick person. Uh, so we anoint that person with oil, to, which actually we believe imparts uh, through that act, that God imparts through that uh, a blessing to that person. So this mixture of how God relates to us, even through the physical, through our own physicality as human beings, this is a fundamental aspect to Catholicism. So this is why you see this gets expanded over and over and over again. This is why people, like, if there's a statue of Christ, you might see, you don't see this so much um, in American culture, but in a lot of Latin or Mediterranean culture, they might kiss, like, the feet of the statue of Christ. They're not worshiping the statue, but they're worshiping Christ who's above, and they're showing him that love and affection through a physical object because that the physical world is sort of bound up in God's grace and in his redemption. Um, that's probably a really broad way of looking at it, but... Basically, it's just that, uh, it's that aspect of how the, even the physical world is wrapped up in our salvation, and we're wrapped up in living out our salvation in the physical world. That's a really important aspect of Catholics. So when, when you're talking about imagination, especially in literature, well, um, you know, Flannery O'Connor would, would have seen so much of the world in that sacramental way, and so so many of her characters are reacting to realities in their own lives as, you know, with that as like the basic assumption that these, these physical realities, um, not that they're like orbs of grace or something, but that 
uh, the, the Lord is interacting with us in some way, even through the physical world, uh, that he gives us his grace, especially in a sacramental way. Or if you think of um, Tolkien, uh, this, the, kind of the, the wild imagination of all these different characters that he has, for all these different characters that he has, um, where you actually, uh, the different characters are manifesting to a certain degree the same kind of sacramental understanding of reality. It's actually, I forget who it was, but in one of the movies they sing, uh, who is it, where he intones something, some kind of song and it's like really low pitched, I forget who it was. I'm sorry, I haven't seen those movies in a long time, I read the books in a long time. But um, he actually sings a Catholic song in the movie. Um, it's a Catholic melody, it's called the Te Deum. Um, it's just delightful. So even even that, like that there's this uh, Catholic-y uh, sense of the universe that comes out and expresses itself in their imagination as well. I think that, yeah, you would see that across the board. Hopefully now we can get some more good Catholic writers doing the same kind of thing. They've been kind of lazy lately. Okay, that was one question. Yeah. All right. Right on. Sorry. Yeah, I... It just turned into a lock-in, okay? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm oh, sorry, right. Eric. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, great. All right, right back here. I'm not going to be offended if you get up and walk out as long as you're not, like, giving me a weird hand signal or something on the way out. It's, I won't be offended, I promise. People walk out on me all the time at my own church. Uh, thank you. Uh, consider, I appreciate your well-considered remarks. Uh, one of the questions I would... Thank you. One of the questions I would ask, does the magisterium consider whether or not a fence needs to be built there? I mean, you know, there's... In some cases, it is absolutely desirable to have a fence. In in some cases, maybe that fence is not appropriate. Yep. You know, where, where scripture, there's a number of, of features which uh, the Christian church on both sides of the Reformation fence have taken hard over issues which have neither been necessary nor very fruitful to our life in Christ. Yep. And, and so is, is part of that discussion, does there need to be a fence there? That's a really cool question. I actually, I'm fascinated. Um, it's because what you're asking about, I think, is what's, how does the magisterium of the church make a prudential judgment about when to act in one way and when to act in another? There are actually other circumstances in the history of the church uh, where the church didn't give a teaching, but just told all the theologians to shut it. Um, they said, you can't argue about this anymore because you're about to cause a riot in our theology. You're about to cause a fight that's going to cause more discord to the extent that we're actually not going to get anywhere. It's going to be problematic. Um, that was called the De Auxilius controversy in Catholicism. Uh, and uh, there are other cases where the church has spoken without uh, being sort of prodded to do so by somebody else. Um, some of the teachings about uh, Mary in the last couple hundred years it's not like somebody in the Catholic Church was saying, we don't believe these things about Mary. The church just said, hey guys, just so you all know, we believe these things about Mary. So there are actually a variety of ways in which the church might respond to doctrinal disputes. Um, the most common would be to clarify a doctrine and sort of create that little fence. Um, the, you're right, on, I think you have a good insight because what we found throughout history is that when we clarify a doctrine, somebody ends up on the other side of the fence. And when we're talking about working toward unity, maybe that might not be always so good. Um, I think that's a, a kind of a valuable thing to say. Like, okay, if we if we don't if we don't sort of put a hard line here, um, maybe we can also be in the same field. The uh, 
I think in general, the church's, uh, the, the church's practice has been that if something gets, um, if there is a disagreement that is causing enough discord uh, and enough already division, then when she makes the, the statements, when she builds the fence, when she tries to clarify our teaching, she would already think that the division is already kind of there. So, for example, um, in the Council of Chalcedon, which occurred in uh, 451, um, there was uh, a discussion about what's called the monophysite heresy, which is that, um, that Jesus had only one nature and not both God and not a human and divine nature, but only one God. Basically, the God nature took over. Um, and uh, there are churches in uh, the, the East, uh, in Egypt and in Armenia, that became separated from churches in Greece, Italy, throughout Africa, and parts of Europe over this. Um, that are still separated to this day, which is very sad. At that time, it was probably more of an issue of not understanding the language. There's like a language barrier. But um, there was already a significant discord between those two groups. When the church in the, in the Council of Chalcedon said, this is what we believe, um, she didn't create a new discord, is how the, I think a lot of the, uh, the magisterium would see it. We're not creating a new discord. We're actually trying to fix it. And we're sort of so far gone that we have to go this far. For us as Catholics, I have a lot of friends with whom I, like, I love to debate scripture and theology in great detail. So um, there are many teacher, like theologians in the history of the church who have some minor differences between them. Um, and I love this. This is so fun for us that we can, as Catholics, we can engage in trying to understand our Catholic faith more fully um, without sort of fear of reprisal, you know. But part of it is that if we, if we got to the point where there's a fever pitch and there's already a practical separation, the church would clarify my arguments with my friend. Um, if my friend and I got to a situation where it was so public and so big that there was a, a division being created in the church in a significant way, the church would, then the magisterium would want to clarify, put a fence. And I'd be on one side or the other. Hopefully I'd be on the right side. Um, but until then, there's actually, as Catholics, there's a, the, the standard experience of Catholics and of Catholic theologians throughout history is that the church actually doesn't intervene very frequently. So there have been 21 of these councils, ecumenical councils, uh, so Trent being the one that primarily responded to the Reformation, but there have been 21 throughout history. Now this is 20 centuries of history. We have 21 councils. Between Trent and the next one, there were over 300 years. Most of those councils are happening in the Middle Ages and they're not, uh, most even Catholics don't even really read a lot of those very frequently because they don't have big doctrinal statements that they're making. They're more practical a lot of times. So even of those 21, I'd say that there are like eight or nine that we go back to frequently. So let's say 10. We'll keep that as an average. Why not? Be generous with it. So what I'm describing here is the church has intervened in this kind of heavy way to clarify a teaching, not actually all that frequently. Um, about, I would say 10 or so times as a, as a, as a council of, with councils of bishops and a handful of times with, with clear uh, pointed direction from the Pope himself by himself without the bishops in union with him directly or um, in an obvious manifest way. Uh, so it's not that the church is actually intervening frequently. Uh, the, what's, I think the experience for us here in East Texas is that um, in East Texas, we're, it's primarily Protestant Christians. 
or those who are descended in some way from have their intellectual heritage and theological heritage from the Reformation. Um, so the church, uh, the Catholic Church, probably appears, you know, to the, the story is you know, the church did this uh, in, in responding in this way and you know built this fence. But in fact, you know, for as a Catholic, um, to a, for us, a lot of this is um, one and a half centuries of German history, German Christian history, but there's a lot of other history to our church. So Spain wasn't having this go on in the same way. Africa wasn't having this go on in the same way, the Catholics in Africa. Um, this was, with, with Luther, it was, a, it was a local thing. So our experience actually on the whole is that the church doesn't intervene all that frequently until it gets to sort of a fever pitch. And I think the experience for someone who's not Catholic, who experiences that, that fence there um, of what the church's teaching would be to see that fence as sort of... Uh, iconic of what the church is doing. But that's not really our experience of it. If that makes any sense at all, I, I don't know. Or if that answers your question, I might have just rambled a lot. I'm sorry if I did. Well, I would love to do this all evening, but we are now at time. So we're going to stop if that's okay. all right. But I want to say again, thank you so very much, Bishop Strickland, Father and I. You guys were amazing. Please join me in saying thank you. Let me, uh, let me just very briefly remind you that uh, next Thursday evening at 7 p.m. in the same very room, uh, you'll be hearing from uh, the Reformed position, uh, not a response or a debate, but just a perspective from the Reformed position from Ben Wheeler of Redeemer Presbyterian and myself. We invite you to come back for that as well. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to pray and dismiss us, and uh, you're welcome to hang out and visit for just a little bit, but when I say amen, we will be done for the evening. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that because of the finished work of Jesus and the presence and indwelling of your Holy Spirit, we can speak words that you hear and that you heed. We pray, God, that you, by this gathering even, are honored and glorified, that your word does continue to sound forth and your worth is proclaimed. We pray, God, for an increase of wisdom and love of you and one another. We pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Good evening.